So we're reading from Matthew 28, verses 16 through to 20. Get excited. Are you ready? Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, um, I, I'm a bit of a fan of heckling uh, in Christian talk. Thank you. But, but, <clears throat> but most people aren't used to doing it, so I need to train you. So I'm going to say a couple of things and count to three, and then you repeat it back. So what a load of rubbish. One, two, three. Who invited him? One, two, three. Get off, one, two, three. Great, you're all warmed up, fantastic. I've been invited along here today to um, this weekend to think about the topic, how to change the world under God. So I'll be speaking about that, we'll be praying about that, talking about that together. Now I thought it might be a great idea to zero in on the Great Commission of Jesus at the end of Matthew 28, because that indeed is the purpose of that paragraph, is that the world would be changed under God. Now we're going to look at a couple of things. This session, who changes the world? The second session, how to change the world? And the third session, how to grow change agents. But before we go any further, I want to ask you a question in a sort of a sober and serious way. I want to ask you the question, do you want to change the world? Do you want to? Now, I'm not asking the question, do you want to change your world? Do you want to change the happiness and comfort that you feel? Because a bloke called Hugh McKay, who wrote a book called The Good Life, calls that me brand thinking. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking whether you want to change your world. I'm asking the question, do you want to change the world? Or put a little bit more pointedly, do you want to change God's world? Do you want to increase the happiness and comfort of others? Do you want to bless the citizens of Port Pirie? Do you want to bless the footballers at Gawler? Do you want to bless the 20 or 30-odd blokes I saw gathering up here at the Victor Harbour Motocross Club last night? That's the question I want to ask you. Do you want to change God's world? It's helpful to just stop and think about that, isn't it? Because I don't know whether you slip into what I slip into, but sometimes when you're praying... um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you do an insert? Do you do a swap and an insert? Sometimes I'm really thinking your will be done at 269 Princess Highway. I just stick my address in. Do you ever do that? No, what we want to do is we want to think about changing the world so that when we're thinking about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're thinking 
the Clare Valley, we're thinking the Riverina, we're thinking the Muslim country of Indonesia, we're thinking northern Iraq, we're thinking the rest of the world. Do you want to change the world? Now, assuming we all do, there's a question that needs to be asked. Who changes the world? If you want to see the world change, someone's got to do it. And who does it? Well, the answer is you get to the question, who changes the world, will differ depending on who you ask. So if you go down to Victor Harbour Coles down there on Seaview Road and you mosey on in and you stand across from one of those, you know, those big round fruit bins and you just stand there to, and then people come up on the other side to get some pears and if you just ask them, hey, who do you reckon changes the world? You get a weird look at first, but if you could get, keep the conversation going for more than 10 seconds, I reckon people would say stuff like this. The well-educated change the world. You see, when we watch Q&A on a Monday night on the ABC, who do they have on as a panellist? It's always someone with an incredibly long list of letters after their name. Academic qualifications are really important, aren't they? If you want to be someone who speaks with authority. The well-resourced. We always listen to somebody who's got heaps of stuff, particularly if they've gone from nothing to something, because they've actually worked out how the world works. The James Packers, the Clive Palmers of the world. And isn't it interesting how our parents often encourage us along a trajectory that gives us the most remuneration for the limited intellectual capacity we may or may not have. Have you ever noticed that? The well-travelled. Australians believe that you've got to travel in order to speak with authority on anything. When you go to a barbie and Dave's flipping the lamb chops on the other side and Dave suddenly slips out that he's actually never been overseas, have you ever heard the gasp that goes around the barbecue? <gasps> How can we ever listen to what Dave has got to say ever again? Australians believe this. 833 Australians went on a cruise last year. 7 million plus return plane tickets were purchased in Australia last year. Wow. And then in our social media world, there's the well-followed. How many people follow you on Twitter? How many friends do you have on Facebook? How liked are you? It's those people with massive followings and massive networks of friends on Facebook that we listen to. You see, in Australia, if you go down to that supermarket and say, who changes the world? They'll say, well, if you've got degrees and you've got dough and you've got devotees, you're a person who's worth listening to. They're the people who change the world. So is the world right well, you've got to go to the scriptures to answer that question, don't you? You've got to ask the question of the Bible. Who changes the world? The world gives an answer and then the Bible gives an answer. And the Bible actually gives an answer that in the first instance is an answer you'd expect because the answer the Bible gives is that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's the one who changes the world. Has anyone here seen the movie Argo? Yep, it uh, won an Academy Award last year. It's an exfiltration movie. Isn't that an awesome word? You know what an infiltration is? Everyone knows that. That's old hat. That's boring. That's a group of people infiltrating a country and doing something. But an exfiltration is when a team goes in and gets people together and gets them out. 
Now, does anyone here know how many people in the movie Argo were exfiltrated in 1979 by the CIA from Iran? Does anyone know? Have a pot shot, have a guess, yell it out. Six. Who said that? God bless your soul. Wow. You must be well educated. Um, <laughs> but isn't it incredible? The CIA, the resources they poured into that to get six people exfiltrated. And then you read Exodus chapter 5 following and you see the exfiltration that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob did. Not with six, but 605,000 men, 20 years or older, plus their families, 2.1 million people. That is power. That is muscle. We run around worrying about regime change. We've got Assad. We've got Tony Abbott and the UN crowd trying to work out what to do in northern Iraq. We've got ISIS or whatever their latest name is. All this stuff's happening. Regime change. How do we do it? Effort, military resources, money. What does God do? In Daniel chapter 5, he just writes with a hand on the wall and there's regime change that night. That is devastating, devastating authority. And then I hear people in Australia today say things like, evangelism in Australia today is like ploughing concrete. Aussies aren't that predisposed to Jesus, granted. But when you read the scriptures and look at Jonah, and in Jonah chapter 3, we see the city of Nineveh, the biggest enemy of Israel at the time, converted by God in roughly one week by his most hesitant prophet to the point such that 120,000 people, everyone from the king to the kids and even the cattle are mentioned, they repent in uh, sackcloth and ashes. That is muscle. That is power. So if you ask the Bible who changes the world, it'll give you an answer that's not that surprising. We're not surprised when the Bible says that the author of change in the world is God. But we do get surprised when we see the agent of change that God uses in the world as time ticks along. It's a bloke called Jesus who is God with teeth and toenails and he's an heir to the throne of David. Now, why is it surprising? Well, we're looking at Matthew 28 and if you began at the beginning of the biography of Matthew, you'd realise why why Jesus is such a surprising change agent. From a human perspective, there wasn't much fanfare at his birth. The ASX 100 wasn't travelling that well in Israel in 4 BC uh, by reason of the fact that it was militarily occupied. And Jesus, instead of fanfare at his birth, his massive achievement by the age of two is not being welcomed into the kingdom for all the subjects to see, but rather travelling to Egypt to escape his first assassination attempt. A surprising change agent to say the least... However, as the Gospel of Matthew moves along, we see Matthew argue argue very slowly and very persuasively that Jesus indeed has authority. So Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is a blue blood in the line of David. He has authority over the nation of Israel. 
Matthew chapter 4, he's led out into the wilderness and tempted by Satan, shown all the kingdoms of the world, they can be yours, and he resists temptation. He has authority over Satan. Matthew chapter 9, he's in a crowd, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, muscles through a crowd, a big throng of people, a little bit like probably what gathers in the square in Hong Kong at the moment. And Jesus is there and she's pushing through. She's been bleeding. She's a Jew. She should not be in the crowd. She's going to make everyone unclean. But she thinks if I just touch his garment, I've spent everything I've got in order to be healed. And if I just touch his garment, and when he does, Jesus stops and says, who touched my cloak? Who touched me? And the disciples and the apostles around him are thinking, he's been smoking whoopee weed. Have a look around, dude. There's gazillions of people here. And he, goes, and he sees her. And he says, your faith has healed you. He has authority over disease. This is incredible. Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Moses, Elijah, Jesus is there. Transfigured in all their glory the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And Peter's, it's good for that we're here. Can I build a, I might build a shelter for each. And then the cloud of God comes down in indignation and a booming voice says, this is my son whom I love. I am pleased with him. Listen to him, not them. They're just prophets. He's my son. Glory. And then Matthew 27, wow, wow. There's the picture that Matthew wants to paint. You want to know who the authority of this king is? Here are three crosses that, we're, that are put before us. And there's a guy on the one in the middle who shouldn't be there. And he shouldn't be there because someone got off scot-free. Who got off scot-free? A bloke who committed murder, an insurrectionist, a rebel. His name was Barabbas. And Matthew wants us to see the swap so clearly. Why? Because Barabbas means son of the father. And who takes his place? The son of the father. The guilty dude who should have got it in the neck is replaced by the innocent one who's never done a thing wrong. Jesus' authority to be the one who pays the penalty for another's sin. He's the atoning sacrifice. It's amazing. And then he rises from the dead in Matthew 28. And then finally in the passage wherein the argument's being built up to the point where he stands there and he says, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's amazing. Once you see all that take place and you ask the question, who changes the world? We're less surprised that God would use Jesus at the end of Matthew than we were at the beginning. So what does the Bible say in answer to the question, who changes the world? Well, unexpectedly, um, it says God. Surprisingly, it says Jesus. But the next answer the scriptures give is absolutely shocking. I became a Christian at uh, 19. <clears throat> I've always thought it was weird how Matthew's gospel ends. It was, uh, it was the first book I read um, just by myself as a Christian. 
I always thought it's weird how Matthew's gospel ends. Have you ever thought it could have ended differently? Let me give you an alternate ending or the ending I thought could have happened. It could have gone like this. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And guess what he's done? He's hired himself a chariot and he's visited 89 countries and spoken in 621 cities. You better believe it. His little church of 11 has reached 11 million in just six short weeks. Stay tuned and you'll hear about the book, book release, the media release, and also the DVD set that you can purge. Couldn't it have ended like that? Have you ever thought about that? Couldn't it have ended with Jesus doing the Billy Graham thing? But it doesn't. Who is called upon by God the Son to change the world? Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted or some hesitated. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who is called upon to change the world? By making disciples. That's the question I want you to answer with the person next to you. Who does Jesus give the Great Commission to? And then I'm going to get you to uh, give me your answer back. Tell me what the person next to you said. That's a good little trick. Um, and then when you give that answer, I'm going to ask you, what verse did you get that from? So make sure you... I want you to tell me, who does Jesus give the Great Commission to? And then the second question is, how do you feel about that? Now, I know I'm an evangelical, but I just thought I'd introduce that question about feelings. Okay? <laughs> who and how do you feel about that? Or how might someone feel about it after doing the exegetical work? <laughs> Have a chat with each other and I'll, I'll get it back from you in a sec. Okay, I might gather your attention back. How you going, dudes? So who, who is given uh, the Great Commission here? <clears throat> yeah, you're going to give uh, the answer for the bloke next to you? Him? Yeah, and where's that in the text? Which verse did you get that from? <laughs> Conrad, is it? Yeah, I didn't see Conrad in the text. I hear you and I love it. But uh, I want to... Who, who is given the Great Commission here? What does the text say? The 11 disciples. The 11 disciples. Which verse? Uh, we're in verse 16. You said the 11 went there and... The 11 what went there? And then Jesus said she's dead. So I don't know what the answer needed. Yeah. Yeah. 11 disciples. Interesting, isn't it? How do you feel about that? Did anyone address the feeling question? Oh, you're feeling it in the waters. Okay, that's a relief. <laughs> I thought you mentioned waters, and I thought, are you just about to give birth or something? Like, <laughs> how do you feel about that? The eleven disciples. They obviously did it. Yeah. Yep. Um, who do you have in your mind's eye when you picture this group of 11 disciples? Who are they? What are they sometimes alternately called? The apostles. And what do we usually... We have our number of apostles. What's the number? 12. 
hang on a second, we've got 11 disciples. Can someone give me some feeling out there? What's happened? One's taken a bullet in the head, haven't they? This is a dangerous game. One of them's gone down because they betrayed Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? It's really, you read 11 disciples and you're thinking, oh, it's the 12 apostles and that bloke who committed suicide. He's not there amongst it anymore. This is serious. This is sad. Now, the other question I've got is, why doesn't Matthew write the 11 apostles went up the mountain? It's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that? It's the 11 disciples. Because presumably it's 11 of the 12 apostles. So why didn't he write 11 of the apostles went up the mountain? Maybe Matthew's not great with Greek. Maybe he hasn't got apostles and disciples worked out too well. Turn back to me with Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10. Because some people have said to me that they're not apostles until they're sent out after the Great Commission. But Matthew chapter 10, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. And then he names them. Interesting, isn't it? Matthew knows the difference between a disciple and an apostle because he's used them in the same couple of paragraphs a few chapters earlier. The reason he uses 11 disciples is that he wants us to know that it is in their capacity as disciples that they're commanded by Jesus to go and make disciples. Now, what's the pay dirt on that? The pay dirt on that is if, it, if it's in their capacity as apostles then we might be tempted to read today that if you're the ordained, denominational, approved leader, you go and make disciples, versus if you're a disciple of Jesus, your job is to go and make disciples. Don Carson um, has written a fantastic commentary on Matthew, and here's a, a sentence he says about the Great Commission. The injunction is given to the eleven in their role as disciples, verse 16. Therefore, they are the paradigms for all disciples. It's binding on all Jesus' disciples to make others what they themselves are, disciples of Jesus. <clears throat> Friends, God's change agents in the world are men and women who follow Jesus. Put a hand up if you're a follower of Jesus. Up high. Put it up high. Put the other hand up high. Take a photo, Elliot. Quick, get it on Twitter. <laughs> it's us. But the world will scream at you. They will say to you, no, you can't change the world. They'll say that you're not well-educated enough, you're not qualified to speak. But isn't it interesting that these exact 11 that Jesus addresses are those who are described in Acts 4.13 as unschooled men. They were tradies. The world says to us, you've got to be well-resourced, you've got to have stuff, mate. You need a decent postcode to be taken seriously in life. Fair income. And what does Jesus say? He says in Matthew 8, verse 20, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere 
to lay his head. You've got to be well-travelled. You've got to be worldly wise. Well, I follow a Lord who didn't do a heap of international travel. There's a real blind spot in the church today. People are travelling overseas all the time, every couple of years, spending thousands of dollars and copious amounts of their leave on it. And they don't even take note of it at all. My mum, who is not a follower of Jesus, did not go on an overseas holiday until she was 57. And I remember asking her, how come, mum, how come you didn't travel overseas on a holiday to see the rest of the world until you were 57? She said, Benny, too many of my friends are in trouble and in need. I, I couldn't justify spending the money on myself for a luxury when they were in such strife. She's not a follower of Jesus. And I look at the church and think, you've just swallowed the middle class pill Lock, stock and barrel. Hey, why don't we all travel the same amount that Jesus did internationally for the same reasons? Let's, when we're suffering an assassination attempt, let's feel free to go for a trip to Egypt. Something like that. And then there's the well-followed and the well-liked. The world says to us, you can't speak unless you're well-followed and well-liked. We have a memory verse in our house. It's 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 and it says, whoever wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Friends, the reason I've laboured this point is that if you're a disciple of Christ, you're God's agent in the world. And there's hard parts about that. But is there a word of comfort in that passage that you saw because Jesus knows that we'll go weak at the knees. Is there, is there a word of comfort in there as God the Son gathers his people on a mountain for a mission? What is the word? What does he say? What is the comfort in there? I want you to yell it out. I'm... Yep, he's got all authority. I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm with you to the end of the age. And the wingman isn't the village idiot. It's precisely what was said. The, your wingman is the person with all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, friends, um, before we finish up, I want to share with you three dangerous myths. Three dangerous myths. Myth number one, you need to be a certain age to be a disciple maker. My little bloke Samuel, who's uh, eight years old, if you ask Samuel, is a Christian a person who believes in God? Samuel will say, nah, well, that's a good start, uh, but Muslims believe in God. You say, no, a Christian is a person who believes that Christ, when he died on the cross, took the penalty for your sins, and he's now Lord. Samuel's eight. Beryl Box is 93. Um, at my church... A mate and I often run evangelistic courses. We'll do uh, the life of Jesus and then we'll follow it on with Christianity Explored. And uh, whenever we run one of these courses, and it's in the bulletin, after the first night, Beryl Box, who's 93, rings up. And Beryl Box says, G'day, Ben, it's Beryl. And I think, I know it's you, Beryl. You're the only one who rings the home line. Um, <laughs> I don't say that because she's a gem and um, so how are you Beryl she said I'm really well I I I've noticed you're running another one of your courses yeah I am Beryl who's coming I want to start praying for them 
Beryl's 93, she can hardly move. And then what gets really uncomfortable is Beryl goes, now I've been going through my prayer diary and how are the other guys going from last year and the year before and the year before that? Hey, uh, I have, uh, haven't seen some of them. Well, I'll start praying for, you know. And Beryl, she, Beryl's calling the strike fighters in. That I can hear them roaring over my head. <laughs> I can't do the battle, but 93-year-old Beryl's just locked and loaded. <laughs> She's awesome. You don't have to be a particular age to be a disciple maker. And the tragedy offered in the church is that we don't expect anything of our children and we don't expect anything of retirees when they're precisely the two groups who can be mobilised really well and have great effectiveness. Myth number two, there are lots of disciple makers in Australia. I gave you a piece of paper, it's on your chair this bit of paper here. I want to just bring a few short facts to your attention. See the big pie graph in the middle of it on the top left? What number of Christians in Australia are Protestant evangelical, Bible reading Christians? 18%. Let's say that's roughly one in five. One in five. That's an awesome sneeze. <laughs> that's a spiritual gift. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be on a plane and you'll do that and someone will come up to you and go oh yeah how you going you know they've got the same sneeze <clears throat> strike up a friendship share the gospel in glory <clears throat> anyway now now a drill down is done on the protestant evangelicals in the bottom right hand corner the, so that, that little wedge of one in five are asked the question how active are you in practicing your religion and 23%, the green bar, say they worship as part of a group very regularly. Notice zero definition of what very regularly means. So one in five Australians are Protestant evangelical. One in five of them worship very regularly. I suspect these are the congregation members of, of, our, of churches in Australia, so it's one in 25 now, I want you to think about your congregation that you go to. What percentage of them are serious about their responsibility to be disciple makers between Sundays or between Saturdays, whatever day your gathering is? What percentage is it? Because I reckon if you were really generous in the church in Australia, you'd say 20%. One in five of all congregation members are disciple makers. So you've got one in five Protestant evangelical, one in five gather very regularly and one in five of them are disciple makers. Is anyone here good at mathematics and can work out that's one in how many? It's one in 125. That's my estimate based on some reasonable data, I think, of how many disciple makers there are in Australia. One for every 125. Myth number three, disciple makers always feel equipped for the task of disciple making. Have you ever read and just stopped and read Moses' interaction with God at the burning bush? It goes for one and a half chapters. He refuses God four times. It's amazing stuff. You can almost hear the triune God in the bush yakking to each other. 
God the Father saying to God the Son, did this guy think I asked him a question? I actually told him to do something. And then the Holy Spirit goes, man, this guy's lame. Like, what's he up to? You know, it's like in the burning bush, like, sorry, I'm not asking questions, dude. I'm giving you a command. Go and do it. And then, and then what's, what's uh, Moses' big knockdown argument? Go, go to Exodus 4 with me. You know, this, this Barney between Moses and God in the burning bush has been going on since 3 verse 1 and we're up to 4 verse 10. And then Moses says to the Lord, 4 verse 10, O oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Isn't that an eloquent way of saying you're not eloquent? I can't speak proper God. And what does the Lord say to him? Who gave man his mouth? Mate, I gave you a mouth and it all works and the, you know, the nasal passage is connected to the other passages connect. I put the teeth in your gobble. If I can do that, I can make you speak okay. Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, I didn't come to you with wise words but in fear and trembling. Steve Payne, who I go to church with, he's the best explainer of Christianity. He's the most courageous, capital E, evangelist. I hate that phrase. But when you say to Steve, are you gifted as an evangelist? He says, no. He says, every time I open my gob, I've got to pop one of those out of the blister pack, a courage pill, and pop it in the mouth and just say it. No one, no one feels well equipped to be a disciple maker. If you're waiting for that day to come, you are seriously deluded and you've just been watching too much midday television. That's not what the scriptures say. The great heroes of old have all felt petrified. Friends, in um, your time with me over this weekend, we'll be looking at how to change the world under God. I know you want to change the world because you're here. Tonight we'll look at the how to change the world, but right now I want you to be crystal clear about who changes the world. God the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit, uses everyday disciples, garden variety Christians, you and me as his agents of change in the world. Heavenly Father, please help us to believe that and help us to avoid the mistakes of Moses where we argue with you all the reasons why we shouldn't do something when in fact you are the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and can use the most reluctant prophet to convert a city like Nineveh. Thank you, Father, that you can indeed plough concrete. Thank you, Father, that you can do regime change. Thank you, Father, that your power and majesty is awesome and that you are with us always to the very end of the age by the Spirit through the Son. And we um, ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.